Welcome to today's Voices of Conservation Science. This is a podcast that focuses on people doing science that's then used to conserve natural resources. I'm Andrea Litt, and I'll be your host for today's episode. And for the episode, I'm talking today with Ben Triano, who's a graduate student at Montana State University in the Department of Ecology. Hi, Ben. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks. How's it going? Good. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks again for taking the time to, to visit with us. I guess let's start off by um, having you tell us a little bit about you. All right. So I was born and raised on the Toms River in New Jersey, and I had the privilege of growing up doing a lot of outdoor activities uh, like fishing, sailing, and surfing on the Toms River, the Barnegat Bay, and the Atlantic Ocean. And, you know, I just really enjoyed being outside, and I love the ocean, and that kind of got me uh, got me into the idea of pursuing a, a, the field of biology and going to school out in Santa Barbara, where I studied aquatic biology. And after that, uh, I ended up taking an internship in Glacier National Park. And like most people do, I completely fell in love with Montana and <laughs> I couldn't leave. And so after, after four years of working on that project, here I am uh, pursuing a master's in fish and wildlife management here at Montana State. Well, that's quite the journey. Go coast to coast and then to the north coast essentially to the, yeah, then, the northern border then to a place i you know <laughs> would have never thought i'd be if you ever asked me before 2013 i never once thought about you know living in montana so i could say the same thing about myself um some of these interviews that we've done i've, I've heard stories from from these interviews and then just talking to other students and they seem to make these big moves for college or for jobs and so it's interesting to me as somebody who stayed pretty close to home for a while. So how did you how did you decide to make to go away from New Jersey all the way to California and then to make the move to Montana without maybe having much experience with these places beforehand? Um well, you know, I've always wanted to see as much as I could and I'm not the the biggest people person in the world and you know, New Jersey's they're pretty packed in there, so <laughs> I actually the reason I really went to San uh, to California for school was probably because I wanted to go surfing in California. So that kind of started it. And, uh, you know, then it's at one point I had my degree and I didn't know what to do. And I heard, you know, Glacier National Park internship and it seemed like the right opportunity, good timing. And, you know, who knows where I'll end up after this, but I'm, uh, I'm open to checking out as many places as possible. Seems like based on your track record, you're going to end up in someplace com as completely different as yeah, possible. Maybe the, maybe the <laughs> desert, who knows? That wouldn't be so bad. Um, so you alluded to a little bit, but can you talk a little bit more about maybe what compelled you to a career in conservation, not just getting your degree, but then pursuing advanced education and then and and deciding you wanted to have a career in conservation? Yeah, well, I, you know, I always kind of knew uh, from an early age when I'd, I'd watch TV shows like The Crocodile Hunter and, you know, see all the cool stuff they were doing. And <laughs> uh, my parent, my dad taught me how to fish when I was young and my parents always encouraged us to be outside. And so we were, I was kind of that one kid, me and my buddies, we'd be walking around town barefoot, uh, pulling a wagon with, you know, nets and buckets and fishing poles. And we were, we were doing fisheries work when we were eight years old <laughs> and we didn't even know it. And, you know, just learning about all the different places in my hometown, which, you know, in, and even in like a one mile radius, there were so many different little habitats that we'd explore. And, you know, our, we always, our parents always encouraged us to you know, pick up trash. And so we'd go out and kind of clean up the beach where we were hanging out. And I guess that was kind of, you know, always a, a thought in my head was that, you know, conservation and, and wildlife are 
the outdoors was something I wanted to work towards. Yeah, that that is, again, another common thread of where we are lucky enough to work where we play. And in your case, it sounds like you've been working where you played for a really, really long time without it being work. So it's pretty nice where work doesn't seem like so much work. Yep, until you get into grad school. But, you know, (laughs) before that, it's all fun and games. It's pretty impressive to me that you had that sort of clarity of vision of where you were headed as a profession, not just the things you wanted to recreate to do as as recreation, that you had that clarity of vision that you were going to pursue this career because I certainly didn't have that clear of a of a trajectory. Um, Yeah, you know, I kind of I kind of thought of it as I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I knew that that's what made me happy. And, uh, you know, you just stay where you want to be and and try to find the path. And, you know, one thing leads to another. And so I wouldn't say I knew, but um, it seemed like the best choice, you know. But you knew what you liked. And and that's pretty important. Was there a particular person that was instrumental in, in helping you along the way in this path? Um, I think, I think, like I said, my parents, they really, mm-hmm. you know, my dad taught me how to fish. I always, we always, I always wanted to go fishing with my dad. So we got to do that a bunch. And also like my two, uh, first real, like best friends as a child, we, I mean, they were, they were the two shoeless kids walking around <laughs> before I showed up and I kind of fell into that. So, and you didn't, none of you thought each other was crazy, which is great. Nope. Um, yeah, really fortunate to get to pay get paid to do the things that we we fell in love with along the way. Um, you you alluded to the idea that that maybe grad school is a little bit harder, maybe not so so much fun. Um, can you talk about hurdles, particular hurdles that you faced along the way, and maybe how you came over came, overcame them? Yeah, I think uh, the main hurdle was you know trying to decide what you wanted to do and what what path you were going to take and how you were going to get there and um, I got a my bachelor's degree in aquatic biology, which, I mean, I'm sure you're familiar, pretty much doesn't really get, set you up for anything too good as far as jobs go. Right. You need that master's degree. Yeah. So I think most of the people that got, you know, bachelor's in biology are kind of, that's the hurdle that we all face is trying to get your foot in the door and, you know, see where you go. And, you know, ending up in Montana was completely random, but it's you know, led me to where I am today. And, uh, other than that, I think, you know, grad school itself is a, is a huge hurdle for everyone. And at times, you know, you want to, you don't want to do it anymore and you're frustrated and overwhelmed. (laughs) And I guess that's all good skills and, and, uh, you know, what's going to get us ready for the future jobs that we're all going to get. So not to mention the, the excitement that you've had since you were a kid about what you were doing. So that's got to help fuel you on those really tough days to think what you're doing is important and interesting and fun yeah with field season right around the corner here it's i'm starting to get a little a little more excited yeah despite the snow that we had this morning (laughs) yeah um rivers are turning brown though so things are moving now we are definitely on the on that tail side of of moving towards summer which is exciting so thinking about the field season why don't you talk about your research describe your your research to us all right yeah so we're uh we're evaluating danil fish ladders and their effectiveness for reconnecting fragmented rivers. And specifically, we're working out on the upper Big Hole River. So we're really concerned with Arctic grayling out there and uh, how these ladders are, are working for them and allowing them to access you know, critical habitats that they need to use throughout the year. And it's, it's a really unique project because we have a bunch of different 
uh, professionals in different fields all working together with this integrated research approach. And, you know, most of the the studies of fishways kind of are like a, they work or they don't work and really qualitative and, and we're after that. But what we're really after is uh, like what, what specific conditions are making these ladders effective or not. And how can we change the, the way they're installed to, you know, provide those passable conditions to fish. And by using our, we have lab experiments and we're going to have field experiments and then uh, hydraulic modeling. We really just have a really, you know, full circle approach to looking at these fish ladders. And I think it's going to be really useful for supplying managers with, you know, good information that they can use to help, help make these ladders work better out there. That's all really interesting. I want to back up a little bit and talk about some of the pieces that you that you told us about to make sure that everybody knows um, what you're talking about. So first, can you talk about fish ladders? Can you tell us what fish ladders are and what they what they do and how they're used, and then specifically about the type that you're evaluating? Yeah. So um, a fishway typically they have some sort of inserts or baffles in them that uh, reduce the the flow of water going through and allow for fish to pass up a over a barrier. And so on the big hole specifically, those barriers are irrigation diversions that uh, the ranchers have been using for, you know, ages out there mm-hmm. to to feed the cows and grow hay. And so, yeah, the, the fishway, it's a, basically just a big metal frame. Um, it's a lot, like 12 or 6 feet long, and it's 2 by 2. And then there's all those baffles are in there, uh, you know, stacked in there to reduce the velocity. So that fish can actually move in the direction that they otherwise couldn't. Yeah, so they're you know otherwise they're there's potentially you know water going over the boards of this diversion, but rather than having to jump, or you know when there is no water, the fish wouldn't know to jump. So mm-hmm. the fishway provides uh, a way up and a way into that thermal refugia or you know spawning habitat that they need throughout the year. And the specific type that you're you're evaluating, how are those different or special? Um, I it's just standard type Danil fish ladder. Um, there's a few different types out there i don't know i wouldn't say they're necessarily uh a special fishway but they are they're they're relatively cheap and easy to install and so they're really good for low head dams and you know such as these pin and plank diversions um it's just a really practical way of you know potentially providing connectivity in these fragmented watersheds it's really nice when management tools are both um practical affordable and effective yeah, well, we'll see if they're how yeah. effective they are. But. <laughs> and then um, I want to give you the opportunity to tell us a little bit more about Arctic grayling, because I'm guessing that's not a species that, that everybody is uh, familiar with. Yeah, so it's a, Arctic grayling are a glacial relic species that um, they used to be present in two populations in the lower 48 states. So they were in uh, off the Great Lakes in Michigan and uh, out here in Montana. And the Michigan population was extirpated in the 30s. And so currently, you know, the the populations in Montana are the last fluvial or, you know, strictly river-dwelling grayling populations in the lower 48 states. And there's been, like, really drastic reductions in range and abundance. And that big hole population represents probably one of the last, what you might call a stronghold of grayling in in the lower 48. There's a few other populations throughout montana but really that's the you know it's the it's the biggest one that's still going on grayling are just a really interesting looking species to me 
they are. They're really cool. They got that really big, colorful dorsal fin. Exactly. Big eyes. And yeah, they're, they're something else. I mean, I fish in the spring on the big hole. I ended up catching three of them, uh, which is pretty, (laughs) pretty rare. And, uh, it was, you know, you catch a 20 inch brown trout and you're excited, but when you catch a 12 inch grayling, you're, I was even more excited. So that's cool. It's cool to see them. The other thing you mentioned with your project is sort of this integration of, of three different sources of information, field based information, lab based information, and then some modeling. Can you talk a little bit more about those and, and maybe how other studies have been done, which of those pieces are missing from, from other studies? Yeah. So the, our approach, um, well, you know, I wasn't involved before all this was going on, but they did, uh, tests in a, in a flume at the Bozeman technology, fish technology center mm-hmm. with the, with the fish ladder and grayling. And they tested different combinations of depth, both upstream and downstream of the ladder. So basically, you know, how full the ladder is on each end. Mm-hmm. And they found this pretty cool relationship where, uh, the depth ratio, you know, upstream over downstream, anything close to one. So when it's a even flow through the ladder was good for passage. Mm. And when you start to get to the other ends, you either get uh, too much turbulence, you get like a big plunge out of the bottom or, or other interesting things that seem to restrict passage. So um, with that knowledge, we went out last summer and we created rating curves and we did topographic surveys of all these sites so that my coworker uh, can create these, uh, these models that, will predict the those depth combinations at any t- at any flow level throughout the year. And so because we have those models and our, you know, this criteria from the lab data, we're going to go out next summer and we're going to do experiments in the, in the field on site with uh with hatchery reared grayling and whatever we catch in the wild which is most likely going to be brook trout. And we're going to try to really strengthen those relationships that were seen in the lab. And if, you know, if they, if those results are comparable, then we have this really cool tool where we know what should work and we know what the conditions are from, you know, spring to, to late fall. And I think that's really unique because in, in a lot of the studies I've been reading about, they, they don't do that. You know, they don't have that. The lab or the modeling. Yeah. Mm -hmm. They're just going out and, and seeing, you know, like initially it was like, let's put a box at the top and see how many pass. And then, you know, you don't know how many tried. And so Mm then, uh, you could do control treatment reaches and it's kind of just evolved and lately, uh, using pit tags is the best way to do it. So, you know, a small tag in the fish that can be detected at multiple antennas that you place strategically throughout the the area. And so that's what we're going to be doing is using pit tags to to see how these fish behave in the presence of the fish way. So you know exactly how many fish attempted and were successful. Yeah. Well, yeah, we'll know how many are even moving upstream or Mm -hmm. participating and then how many are attracted to the flow at the bottom of the ladder and how many enter and and successfully pass. That's really interesting. The, the idea that you can create some understanding and some knowledge under more ideal conditions, both in the lab and using computers and then use that to inform what you're doing in the field instead of doing the trial and error just in the field. Yeah, and we're also we're also kind of like a lot of past studies have uh, have looked at different slopes of the ladder and like you know different physical criteria like that, and we're going to be including that in our study design so that we can suggest the best way to put these ladders in based on those results, you know, passage results from depth as well as you know how steep can we make this ladder to where it still works and 
it'll keep it in the water at low flows, you know? Yeah, it's great. So uh, I think I have a sense of it based on what you've just described, but tell us from your perspective why you think your research is, is important. Well, I think one of the main things is, you know, these they put these ladders in to increase connectivity out there and, and provide access to these critical habitats, but only a f- very few of them have been evaluated and mm-hmm. it hasn't been a rigorous, you know, evaluation like what we're doing. So we're kind of the first ones to look at these and there's, there's 63 of them out there right now that, you know, some of them, we, a lot of them we haven't seen, we we've seen about 20 of them. So we're focusing on, on around 15 for our experiments. And yeah, it's a, you know, a really good opportunity to help improve the conservation status of grayling and hopefully the, you know, the things that we come up with that we can share with managers can be applied directly to the creeks that are most important for grayling. So there's only in our study, our, our study region, there's not that many creeks where grayling are still, you know, using them. So we hope that our, our findings can be applied to those sites. And then also just this overall approach. I mean, there's no, there's no standardized way to evaluate a fishway out there and the integration that we're using and the methods for our direct evaluations in the field are kind of what I believe are kind of like the cutting edge of, of fishway evaluations right now. So hopefully this, you know, three tier approach with the lab field and modeling data is something that people use in the future all over the place. That's really exciting. Um, uh, really nice that you can integrate not just the different disciplines, so the fisheries biologists and ecologists and, and then the hydrology piece, but but also integrate the the managers and have on-the-ground applicability in your system, but then the transferability, hopefully, to other places that other people can use it. Yeah, we tried to, we tried to really think about what we saw last summer and what were the no-brainers, like this could be better if we did this. And um, I think our study design right now, how we're going to do these experiments, really covers a lot of those factors that should come into play. And hopefully we can tell managers, you know, once it gets to eight CFS, you're not having fish swim up your ladder anymore. So they can potentially, you know, think about water rights or it's a touchy subject, but Mm -hmm. they can think about asking landowners to, to stop drawing water when they get down to the low levels in the summer. What do you think the best thing you could discover would be? Hmm. I mean, I think just finding a, a way to inform an ideal installation of a fish ladder that mm-hmm. is going to provide passage over the widest range of conditions. So maybe, you know, you have a range of slopes, but you want to, you want to target these certain depths all year. So mm-hmm what is that sweet spot? You can put a ladder in at each site, uh, to where you'll get that. And, you know, just from our, our, uh, our depth loggers and the rating curves we've made, we can hopefully do that for the other sites that we haven't seen. And just base based off of our, you know, passage results, someone can go out and survey a site in one day and put a logger in and, you know, you can, you can end up with, pretty good idea of how the ladder should be installed to to really move fish over the greatest you know time of the year what about from the perspective of arctic grayling what's the best thing you could discover for conservation or management of that species um i think you know that that they do swim up the fish ladders um 
they've caught a few they've put traps at the tops during spawning and caught a few but no one's tested whether grayling can swim up the ladder or are willing to swim up the ladder in lower flows and although we're not using natural fish because they're not there's not that many of them it is like the first you know evaluation of these ladders with grayling so hopefully we can we can provide access to you know colder habitat and and spawning grounds where it might not have been there before and less fragmented exactly nice uh you've got another field season coming up so that's you're sort of in the middle of your your research project yep. that, yeah um the last question we ask during these interviews is uh what's your favorite animal what's your favorite plant or one of each all right i'll i'm going to give you both but excellent uh, you know, I get this question all the time, and it's really tough to think about what your favorite animal Just is. Just one. It's hard. I, you know, there's all kinds of exotic fish running through my brain, and that are you your favorite. Could be your favorite. Could be my wow. favorite. Wow. Um, but at the end of the day, um, it's because you said what's my favorite animal, not species. I'm gonna have to go with my <laughs> dog back home, uh, my border collie Lola. Uh, she lives back home with my mom, but I, something about dogs. I mean, everyone loves them, and I think one of the things that always intrigued me about animals was you just don't know what they're thinking or, and you, you know, you kind of always imagine what it would be like if you could go talk to a fish or, but a border collie, I mean, when you look in a border collie's eyes, you can kind of tell what they're thinking a little <laughs> bit. So it's, it's kind of like a whole nother level of connection with animals. Uh-huh. And then, although I am a, I am a complete fish head, I do like plants too. And, uh, I really like trees. So I think, Favorite plant would be a giant sequoia. Oh, very good choice. And uh, yeah, I got to see them a few years ago out in California and just standing around, you know, surrounded by 1,500-year-old trees that are 200 feet tall. I mean, there's really no better way to put everything into perspective than, <laughs> than to feel that insignificant. So. No kidding. Both both in um, perspective in time and in space. Exactly. I think that's a good that's a good check when, when life gets kind of crazy to to be in a place like that that um where the environment is vast or the species is vast and yeah you can really see you know there's there's a lot more to the to the world than your problems yep. or, or your fun so. absolutely no i think that's a great that's a great choice ben thanks so much for taking time to visit with us and tell us more about you and about your work and about your 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 journey throughout this this profession yeah thank you I really wish you the best um, in the rest of the time that you have with your project. I'm excited to hear about your results later on and wish you the best in, in your time here at Montana State University. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks very much. Um, and thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to today's Voices of Conservation Science. And um, please tell a friend about this podcast.